Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Book of 1 Peter, chapter number 4 this morning. We only have a couple more weeks in the book of 1 Peter, and uh, I've enjoyed studying it. I've enjoyed opening up with you over the past um, several weeks. And so we are coming towards the end of the book. And um, after Easter, excited to jump into something um, new and excited to talk more about that um, a little bit today and then more in the next couple of weeks. And um, last week, if you were with us, I encouraged everyone to take a minute to write down a name, um, put it in your cell phone, to write it on a piece of paper, do whatever you need to with that. And I encouraged you to um, give them the gospel, um, to reach out to them about the good news of Jesus Christ, to think about who you can be inviting to join us for Easter. Um, we're going to be opening up the word on that day like we do every Sunday, and I'm excited to talk about um, Jesus and his resurrection, his victory over death, many of the things that we sang about this morning. And so I look forward to that day in just a few weeks, just a few weeks as we can celebrate the resurrection of Christ together. For today, we are in, again, the book of First Peter, chapter number four. Um, how many of you have ever taken intentional steps towards health. I mean, how many of you have ever um, started a new exercise plan or maybe you started a new diet or a lifestyle change, which is a fancy word for diet? Um, anyone ever do anything like that? Excellent. Excellent. Um, I, uh, about, let's see, sort of been about five years ago. Um, I probably weighed about 45 pounds more than I weigh now. And um, I was like, okay, this isn't healthy. Uh, we just had, my wife was pregnant with two of our children, um, pretty close to each, to each other. Um, and I gained the sympathy weight, right? And so went through all of that. And, I, and, and we said to each other, we've got to be healthier. We've got to be healthier. And so we started making some um, changes to our diet. And then uh, this year, um, coming into 2020, we um, kind of recommitted to that. It was last year, about a year ago, recommitted to that. And then um, hit, when we hit March, um, as many of you know, it's been one year. It's hard to believe it's been a whole year um, with everything that's been going on in our world. Um, and so about a year ago, um, the world just kind of seemed like it just ground to a halt, right? Um, where schedules just went out the window, things were getting canceled, left. We didn't know how to respond to, and so um, everything just kind of shut down um, for a few weeks and gradually things opening back up, returning to some kind of normal, right? And so um, once everything kind of slowed way down, once the church that uh, I was uh, ministering at at the moment, once everything kind of slowed down, I said, okay, I need something to do like with my time. I need something to do with my hands. I need something to, to do, right? And so I decided to pick up um, exercising consistently again. And so I began um, to I began to run, I began just to run a few nights a week um, and made a habit of that and really enjoyed it. And after a couple of weeks, I could tell a difference in myself, right? Um, after a couple of weeks, I felt like I, I began to gain a little bit more endurance. Um, I be, my clothes began to fit a little bit um, more loose. And then after um, another few weeks, um, my wife began to notice right? And she began to say, um, say things like, oh, I can tell that that's fitting looser. I can see um, that you're losing some weight. I can see that you're getting healthier. Um, and then and this was back, this was about March. It, it was funny because people would um, eventually begin to comment about, hey, you look like you've uh, thinned out. You look like you've lost some weight. It was, there were some people that were friends of mine. I would see them on a weekly basis at church. And then in July, they would go, hey, did you lose some weight? I mean, it's like four months later, right? 
I saw the progress within a couple of weeks. Those close to me saw the progress um, within a month or so. And then uh, some of my other friends didn't even notice for months, even though uh, weight had been lost and I had gone towards health. How many of you have been there, right? You want everyone to take notice because you're noticing, but it takes a little bit longer for everybody else to kind of see those results. Understand this, and this is what we're going to jump into today in 1 Peter 4. When God is changing you, when God is growing you, there will be change. When God is growing you, there will be change. Now, the thing sometimes that can frustrate us is this change doesn't happen overnight, does it? I mean, we, we don't expect our garden to grow up overnight, do we? Um, maybe some of us do. Maybe you're like me and you do, and that's why you don't garden. Um, no, it doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't expect overnight that garden to be bearing fruit. A Second Corinthians chapter 3, Paul gives us some insight into this process as he speaks of how uh, we are changed into the image of Christ from glory to glory or from a step to step, speaking of it as a progressive change. But some seasons, some seasons, this change feels so slow that it almost feels like God isn't even there. Some seasons, we're just, Lord, I'm seeking after you. Lord, I'm praying. Lord, I'm in the word. And I'm still struggling with the same things that I'm struggling with. Uh, Lord, I'm trying to follow after you, but I just can't seem to get it right. Um, after Easter, I'm excited to jump into a new study, um, a study that we're going to call Invisible God. Invisible God. And we're going to study a whole book of the Bible where God is seemingly absent. But what's actually true is he's not absent, he's just unseen. And amazingly, God often does his best work when he is unseen. And so as we come into 1 Peter chapter number 4, We're going to find God. We're going to find what he's doing inside of us. And even though, even though the change may not be the pace that we want the change to be at, we're going to see how God is continuing to grow us through his grace. Look with me at verse number one. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray as we continue in the word this morning. Father, I'm grateful just to be able to open up your word. I thank you that in our lives that you change us, that you mold us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that we don't have to just try hard to do these on our own, but Lord, that you are the one who does the work in us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open your word today, that you would do that work in us. I pray that you would show us these areas of growth. I pray that you would help us to see fruit in them. We praise you. We bless your name. We love you. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today, uh, I've entitled this message, Same Skin, New You. Same skin, new you. Uh, 
You know, one of the things about spiritual change is that it doesn't immediately and often uh, result in change on the outside, does it? Um, Oftentimes, uh, our face, all the time, our face stays the same. So something radical and something new and something transformational takes place in our hearts, but then we go to work the next day, we go to school the next day, we spend time with friends or with family members, and they look at us and they see the same person. And so what we're finding here is that Peter is addressing a group of people that outwardly they have remained the same in certain ways. But at the same time, they are behaving and they're exhibiting differences that's caused the world around them to kind of look at them a little bit funny. And so as we begin this, this first portion of the passage we're going to read today uh, is the kind of the trouble with the same skin, the trouble with having the same skin. Uh, And maybe it would even be easier for us if when we were saved, when we became followers of Jesus, we got a whole new body and a whole new face and a whole new everything. And then people are like, oh, who are you? And you say, well, I'm Nate. And you're like, no, you're not Nate. Like, yeah, this thing happened. And then all of a sudden people see this new start within us. But that's not how God chooses to grow us, is it? And so Peter explains that there's a little bit of trouble that we have with having the same skin. And understand this. He says the same skin, not the same. I'm talking about the same skin, not the same sin. All right. Watch what happens in verse number one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So because of the suffering of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, our suffering has an interesting way of taking sin out of us. Suffering has an interesting way of helping us as we grow. Oftentimes, we want to avoid suffering, don't we? Um, can I tell you something? Just can I speak honestly with you? I told you that I had started in 2020 running and I had done these things, right? I hate running. I hate it. I hate it. I was doing it because I knew I needed to do it. But every time I would get home and I would just like collapse on the floor And Cindy would be like, how do you feel? I'm like, terrible, right? I mean, I was just, I'm such a baby. I don't want to do that. Like my legs feel like jello and I'm breathing heavy and I'm sticky and sweaty. And then I still have to clean up and do all these other, I mean, like I'm still like half an hour away from like being able to actually relax. My lungs are on fire. Like nothing about this is enjoyable. I want the results of it. I don't want to actually have to do it. And you're like, if there's a gym membership for that, sign me up, right? But instead, what we find is that while we suffer, while we put our body through these things, there are good results that come about through it. And so same thing similarly is true of our suffering. And so as we look at Christ's suffering in the flesh, we are told to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. So take the mindset that Christ had about his suffering. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You see, Paul would say it a little bit differently. He would call us to be this, to be dead to sin, that we may be alive unto God. You see, in times of suffering, oftentimes what happens in times of suffering is that sin loses its appeal. Suffering causes us to focus on the things that actually matter. For example, could you imagine... um, 
here's a, here's a great idea of what not to do. How many of you, has anyone here ever run a marathon? Mike. All right. All right, Mike. Mike, when you ran that marathon, um, if you had come across the finish line and if, um, let's just say Jackie's waiting for you there, being supportive and everything, um, that's what happened, right? For sure. All right. Let's say Jackie's waiting there and she has some great hydration for you. She whips out a two liter of Coca-Cola. Mike, how you feeling? Could you imagine going to the end of a race and being like, here you go, guys, and handing out, handing out soda, handing out something carbonated? Like, is that what you want? Is that what your body wants in that moment? No, no. It might be fun to watch Mike try to drink two liters of Coke after running a marathon. All right, but it's not going to be a good thing. What does Mike need? I mean, Mike needs water. Maybe a little bit of Gatorade. But I mean, at that moment, Mike's just probably, you're, whoever you're running this marathon, you just want water. You want to be hydrated. After you cool off for a few minutes, maybe you need a banana or whatever. But you need something healthy. You don't want something full of sugar and full of carbonation. Now, if you're at a backyard barbecue, then a Coke is great, right? We love a Coke. But when we're suffering, our body and our spirit longs for those things that help us through that suffering. And understand this, as he speaks of those that have ceased from sin, he says those have suffered have ceased from sin. When you've died to the flesh, sin doesn't appeal to you the same way as it used to. Sin doesn't uh, have its hooks in you the way that it used to. We reject these kind of things because we understand the things that actually have value. And suffering has a way of removing from us desires that don't belong. Suffering has a way of removing from us desires that don't belong. And so as these believers that Peter is writing to, he said, you suffered in the flesh. That desire for sin, you've taken on the same mind of Christ. That desire for sin is left you. Instead, verse 2, live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now watch this. Is he speaking of an external change or an internal change in that verse? External or internal? It's internal, right? He says what? He says, live for the rest of the time of the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so he's giving us a contrast. What are you living for? Human passions or the will of God? Your desires or God's desires? And so he's placing us at a crossroads. And he's saying you have to choose in these things. As believers in Christ, as followers of Christ, we reject the things that our flesh desires when it contrasts what God desires for us in his will. And then watch what he says. Verse three, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Uh, here's what he's saying. It's kind of an interesting thing he's saying. He's saying, hey, listen, the time that you lived in the flesh, that's enough time. That's enough time. Well, you say, well, Nate, how much time was that? Doesn't matter. That's enough time. Now that God has saved you, now that you've started following after him, however much time that was, done. Then times passed. You say, well, oh, I have this history of, or maybe you'd say, hey, listen, I grew up around church and I never had the opportunity. My, my parents were believers in Christ and I never had the opportunity. I just want to sow some wild oats or whatever, whatever you want to say it, right? He's saying, no, 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 the time that you've already done that, that's enough. 
Whatever that amount of time is, that's enough. It's time to focus on the things that are ahead. It's time to shift our mentality so that we can follow after Christ better. But what happens when we do this? Watch this. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And so what happens when we reject sin? He says, when you reject sin, those friends that you behave sinfully with are going to be surprised by that rejection of sin. The culture that Peter is writing to, if you remember, he's writing to, we say he's writing to exiles is the word that we're using. These are believers in Christ that are living. The cities that he names in chapter one are in a region called Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. This was an area that was heavy in its worship of Greek and gods. Many of these gods, these deities, these temples took place uh, very immoral parties, things that would go on celebrations of these gods. And so as Peter is writing, he says, when your friends invite you to go to their temple and to worship their gods, and you say, no, I'm a follower of Jesus, they're going to be surprised. Why? Because it's the same skin, but it's a new you. They say, wait a second. You were always the one that was, I mean, you loved these things. This was your favorite time of year. You always wanted to go to these celebrations with us. What are you talking about that you don't want to partake in this anymore? And, and so how then do we respond? He says, don't be surprised when they, when you, uh, they will be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. That's a great phrase, right? Um, interesting fact. This is the only time that the word flood is used in the New Testament metaphorically. Every other time, speaking of the flood, it's speaking of Noah's day or anything like that. So this word flood is really interesting. He's speaking of this sin that just surrounds us in our culture like a flood. And so he's saying, when you reject these things, they're going to be surprised. And then watch what can happen sometimes. They malign you. They speak evil of you. Now, are they speaking evil of you because you have done evil? Is that what's happening here? No, the opposite. They're speaking evil of you because you've done good or you've rejected evil. And so what happens here? Why, why do people behave this way? You see, sometimes, um, sometimes uh, if you've spoken to, uh, depending on who you speak to, you may have heard of Christians having a reputation for being judgmental. Now, can I say this? Let me say this to our primarily Christian crowd. If you're in here and you'd say, you know, identify as a Christian. Hey, that's great. That's fine. We're, you're welcome here that uh, you'll come to know Christ, but you're welcome to come here. Uh, but for most of us in here, we are Christians. We follow after Christ, right? Um, and can we just together, can we agree that we have, we've met judgmental Christians? We've met judgmental Christians. Um, stop looking around. All right. Some of you guys, some of you are all just Trying to identify him. No, 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 not, not here, of course, just hypothetically. Um, but listen, listen, when we speak of being judgmental, um, there are also judgmental people in the world, right? Uh, we all have to be careful and to resist this. But here as he's speaking, he's saying they're maligning you for choosing to do what is right. And he's saying, listen, he's not saying because you had a bad attitude about because you, he's saying you just made this decision to do what's right and people look down on you. Understand, oftentimes this can happen. 
And it's not always because of the way that a Christian responds. Uh, see, sometimes what happens when someone says, um, I don't want to partake in that. I don't want to do that. I, I don't think that what you're doing is right. Inside of us, inside of us, we feel judged when that happens to us, don't we? When we're partaking in something, when we're doing something and someone confronts us about the way that we're behaving, how many of you feel judged when that happens? We don't like that. We don't like that. Oh, so you think you're better than me, right? Like this defense mechanism goes up inside of us. And sometimes for our friends that don't follow after Christ, that can happen in them too. And so as we say, hey, you know what? I, I'm not going to go to that party with you. Hey, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not going to do that with you. Thank you for the invitation, but I, I'm not going to do that. You know what? Even the most gracious way he could say it, sometimes there's a conviction that takes place. And so that's what Peter's speaking of here. He's saying, don't be surprised that they are surprised and don't be surprised that they malign you. But watch this. They will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You know what our desire for those friends is? Our desire for those friends is that they would come to know Christ as well. That they would understand the hope that comes in believing in Jesus and placing their faith in him. And so what happens here in this transition? Watch this. He says, uh, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Now, was it preached to those who are actively dead? There's a little bit of debate here. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe what the Bible is saying here is that they were being taught prior to their death. So they had heard about Christ, and now after their death, Christ is still true. They had rejected Christ. And so the gospel was preached to those, even those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit as God does. Because you see, we are first and foremost accountable to God. And as we are judged in the flesh, this is speaking of a judgment of our outside, uh, the way that people see and the way that people perceive. But we are called to live in the spirit. We are called to change from the inside out. And understand this, the inside, what's on the inside of you will always come out. It will always come out. Whatever you're putting into yourself, whatever's happening on the inside, it's not going to stay inside forever. And so this is a continuation of some of the thought that we talked about last week, right? We've been there where the inside words pop out. We say something that we didn't mean to say, but where, where did it come from? Did it just spurt out immediately? You can say, I didn't mean to say that all you want, but it doesn't mean you didn't mean it because it was in your heart. And so the thing that was on the inside is now coming out of us. And so when we change, when God changes what's on the inside, What's on the outside changes too. The way that we behave, the way that we act towards each other, the way that we treat one another, the way that we make decisions, all of these things change. Uh, you see, if you view your life as a life in exile, you're going to live like an exile. If you live your life, if you inside believe that in this world we're tourists and we're meant to just have a good time, we're here for a good time, not for a long time, right? If that's what we believe, then we're going to live like that, won't we? 
If we say, uh, I'm an immigrant, and internally we believe that we are immigrants in this present world, and we say, oh, wow, look at the great life that I can build for myself here, and so we build and we build and we build, we're going to behave like immigrants. What's on the inside is going to come out. And you say, oh, I want outside change. I want outward change. And listen, we live in a culture that we want a quick fix. I don't think it's unique to our culture. I think it's always kind of been that way. But we would love a quick fix, wouldn't we? Um, We love microwaves. We love fast food. We love whatever we can get quickly. But the fact is, is that growth in Christ doesn't happen quickly. And oftentimes we can get discouraged because it's not as fast as we want it to be. Sometimes some, some people, I, I, listen, I think there's even some of us in the church that we would rather a pastor or we would rather a preacher get up and say, hey, just do this, do A, do B, do C, and then I know what to do. And then I walk out of here and I can go do those things. Well, that's not the message that I have for you this morning. Because the fact is, is that those things that we do come out of who we are. And we could go with self-help lists, and you can go to a bookstore, and you can buy books that'll tell you 10 ways to improve this, 10 ways to change that. But the fact is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ changes us from the inside out. When your heart is changed, when your heart is gripped by Christ, when your heart comes into submission to the word of God, those changes will happen. But the change doesn't start on the outside and just work its way in. The change starts on the inside, and it works its way out. And so here, as the people that Peter is writing to are called to behave differently, they're not called to act better or to be better or to do more things. They're being called to change themselves or to be changed from the inside. And that's going to reflect how they behave on the outside. Then why would they even go through all of this trouble? Why would they even go through all this trouble? Why would they behave this way? Why should we then act the way that these, Peter, these people that Peter are writing to are called to act. Well, look at verse number seven. What does Peter say? The end of all things is at hand. And so today I'm going to make a prediction about the end of the world, right? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Maybe you've heard uh, about those who try to put a date and try to say this is. And understand as Peter is writing this, Peter's writing this about 2,000 years ago. And he says the end of all things is at hand. As we await the return of Christ, there's two words that we sometimes get confused if we're not careful when it comes to our uh, theology and our understanding of the things that are to come. Uh, One word is immediate. Um, You see, sometimes you may hear someone say that Christ's return, the end of all things, this is immediate. It's going to happen now. I remember when I was, um, I remember when I was, I was probably eight, nine years old, and my dad took me to um, a, a revival meeting at another church. And I don't think it was even in our area. And there was a pastor that I had never met before who was, um, who was preaching. And he said, I'm convinced that Christ is going to return in the next five years. All right. And in case you didn't guess, I'm older than 14. All right. I mean, he was just adamant. Oh, he's going to come back in the next five years. Well, listen, Christ said that even the son doesn't know the time or the hour that he's going to come. The father's not even told him these things. Then how do you think that you're going to decipher this code or whatever it may be? So let me say this, the coming of Christ, it may or may not be immediate, but it is, listen to this difference, imminent. It's imminent. Here's what that means. As believers in Christ, there's nothing else that we're waiting for. 
We're not waiting for the Messiah to come for the first time and to suffer and to die for our sin and to be raised again. That's already happened. We're not waiting for this next thing and this next thing. Throughout the New Testament, read the authors, read Peter, read Paul, and they're always looking forward to the return of Christ. It is imminent. Here's what that means. It could be immediate. It might not be. We may live the rest of our lives here on this earth. We may die just like uh, those who have gone before us. And our kids may grow up and live to old ages. And they may pass someday. And our grandkids and our great-grandkids, we don't know. But what we do know is that that's the next thing that's happening. Here's maybe how I can, how I can illustrate it. Um, let's say uh, my wife and I, we have, we have four young kids. Um, most of you are pretty aware of that. Um, we have four young kids. And let's say my wife and I and our kids... We got up uh, in the van, and let's say we, we took a trip to Hobby Lobby. Um, and let's say the f- six of us, we went to Hobby Lobby. But I, I said this, hey, Cindy, why don't you run inside? You go pick up what you want, um, and the kids and I, we will stay in the van. Um, okay, that sounds fair. Kids, maybe watch a movie on the DVD player or whatever, you know, instead of trying to navigate four kids through the aisles of Hobby Lobby. That's a fair deal. Right? And so I send, so uh, I don't even send her, she goes off on her own accord into Hobby Lobby. And I'm sitting in the van, right? And five minutes pass. This is not a true story. Um, hypothetical, purely. Five minutes pass. And I'm looking at my watch. I'm scrolling through stuff on my phone. I'm being very diligent, of course. Um, scrolling through whatever on my phone, just waiting for my wife to come out of Hobby Lobby. And then five minutes becomes 10 minutes. And you know what? I decide 10 minutes is a long time. Dunkin' Donuts is not too far from Hobby Lobby. And so I say to myself, self, we're already in the van. It's running. The kids are buckled. And donuts. I don't need anything else. And so I decide to take the van and go across the street to Dunkin' Donuts. Now, what's going to happen like the moment that I leave Hobby Lobby's parking lot to go get donuts? I'm going to get stuck in the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts, right? And the drive-thru is going to be, you know, running slower and backed up. My phone is going to ring. And it's going to say, Cindy Click. Hello. (laughs) Hey, I'm in the parking lot. Where are you? I thought you wanted coffee. <laughs> it's the best I got at the moment, right? You're going to say, Nate, that was a terrible idea. Just wait five more minutes. Like, don't, don't leave your wife at the store. Like, that's, I mean, if any of you could give marital advice, that's like the thing. Don't leave your wife somewhere. But then as believers, Christ says, hey, I'm going to return soon. And we're like, you know what? He hasn't returned yet, so maybe he's not coming back at all. And then we begin to live a way uh, that doesn't even look for the return of Christ. Well, that's the opposite of what we're called to do. We're told to occupy until he comes. That word occupy means work. It means to do the things that we are called to do. Because the end of all things is at hand. The next thing is the return of Christ. And I'm not promising you that he's going to return in our lifetimes. I don't know that. But I am here to tell you that he could, and we ought to be living like it. 
Because even if we don't live like his return could come, the fact is we are not promised another day. We are not promised another week. Our life, it's, it's, it's like a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. We are not promised any more than we've been given. And so that's the reason that the time, hey, listen, whatever time you were behaving like, uh, he used the word Gentiles to speak of those who are unconverted. Whatever time you were acting like the ones who don't believe in Christ, hey, that's enough time. Let's, let's cut it off there and let's move forward because the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And so what we find is we find the blessing of the new you. And what does he say? He says, arm yourselves with the same, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse number eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So we ought to be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. We ought to love one another earnestly. Now, understand, earnest love is a sincere love. This is a love that is not faked. It's not put on. It's not uh, uh, an outward sort of. This is a love that begins internally. And then watch what he continues in. He says, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, Listen, understand this. If you keep a record, even if it's not a written record, I hope no one in here keeps a written record of things that everyone has done wrong. I mean, that's like, we're just not going to talk about that. But so many of us, it's so easy to keep that mental record, isn't it? We chalk it up and we say, oh, that person. You know what? That time they did this. What does he say? He says, keep loving because love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't keep a record of these things. Love covers it. Show hospitality to one another. Watch this. Without grumbling. Treat everyone as your guest. And don't go complaining to everyone about it. Oh, man, that was just so hard being hospitable. Like, okay, all right. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Watch this. Verse number 10. This is kind of the the crux of this portion of the passage. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Now understand these things that we have been given. As we are called to serve one another, as this internal change is beginning to express itself on the outside, there are those things that we reject and walk away from, but then there are also those things that we begin doing. Oftentimes, as believers in Christ, one of the traps we fall into is stop sinning, but then we never move towards doing anything else. And so here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, start behaving like these things are actually true, not just in rejecting, but in pursuing something else. As each has received a gift, use it to serve another. And so you see, each of us has been given a gift. A gift is something that is given to us, right? And maybe your gift is a talent or an ability. Maybe there's something that you can do well, and God has gifted you with this. Maybe your gift is a resource. I know we have people in our church that are retired and they love to spend their time serving others through their retirement. They work maybe harder than they did when they were actually working because they want to bless others with the time that they have. What a gift. I know there are some that give financially and give generously. What a gift. But understand that these things are gifts that we have been given as well. So it doesn't make any sense for us to keep them for ourselves because they were given to us in the first place. You say, well, I worked so hard for that. But understand, who gave you the energy to do that work? 
Who placed you in the situation to receive that job? Who gave you that contact or that connection? Who gave you the mental ability to be able to step into those things? Who, who gifted you with any of this? Every good and perfect gift comes from above, does not come from inside of ourselves. And so the things that we have, God has given to us. Therefore, we can't take pride in those things, can we? But we rejoice in him and we can give to others. And so these gifts that we have been given, we are to use them to serve one another. And look at this word. I skipped right over it, but I want to pay attention to it in verse number 10. As each has received a gift. How many people in the church has God not gifted? How many people in the church has God not gifted? Was there a line and then somehow God skipped from place 31 to place 33 and person number 32 has no gifts? <gasps> Each has received a gift. If you're sitting in here today, if you are breathing in here today, if you're not, let us know, all right? If you're in here today, God has given you a gift. I don't know what your gift is. You may not know what your gift is, but God knows what your gift is. And we want to help you develop that gift so that you can use it to serve others. And then what happens as we serve others? Jump down to verse number, um, verse number 11, the end of the verse. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see, we don't use our gifts so that our names may, may be known. We don't use our gifts so that people may know who we are. We use our gifts so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ because he's worth talking about. He's worth lifting up. He's worth making a big deal of. And so what we find is that we are given a gift and we are called to use this gift. And by using this gift, it gives God glory. And understand, we glorify God best when we do what he has called us to do, regardless, regardless of perceived status. You say, hey, well, listen, my gift is not to get up and sing. My gift is not to get up and teach. My gift is not to be in front of people. So I don't know. Listen, there are some people that are so they're gifted and they just don't need any credit. They would be happy to hold a door out front and they would love just to hold the door and say hi to people coming in the building. Hey, listen, we could use that. What a wonderful thing that would be if coming into church, someone was standing there holding the door, smiling, welcoming those walking into the building. I would be encouraged by that, wouldn't you? You say, well, that's not a gift. Why not? What do you mean that's not a gift? Of course it's a gift. And we can use that to serve one another. Because understand this, there are people in here that I said standing outside and holding the door and saying hi to people. Some of you introverts just like curled up and died inside. That's just not your thing. Nate, I don't want to talk to anyone ever. But understand, God has given each of us a gift. And understand this too. There's a danger to not using your gifts. There's a danger to not serving one another. Because we watch, watch whoever speaks as, one, as who, one who speaks oracles of God. So as we speak, speak on behalf of God. Speak the things that God is directing you to say. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength of God that supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory. 
And understand, if we have not, if we are not using our gifts to bring glory to God, that glory belongs to him. That glory is his. It is rightfully his. The gift that he has given to you, he has given to you to be used for his glory. And so what happens? If we have been given a gift to steward on his behalf, and we are not returning it and serving others and glorifying him through it, are we not in some way, shape, or form robbing God of the gift that he has given to us? And I'm not saying that to guilt anything, but I want you to understand God has given a gift for a purpose and there's a danger to not using our gifts and understand there are times, there are seasons, there are stages of life where other things inhibit and other things prohibit. But the fact is, is that you, if you have spent your whole Christian life asking, what can I get? You're missing out on the blessing of giving through your gifting and and understand this. There are others that are missing out on a blessing because you are not serving, because you are not giving. And understand this, you are missing out on a blessing because we find that God cares for and God blesses those who bless others. And so what do we see here at the very end of this passage? That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so we find in this passage that there's the same skin, but there's a new you. So what makes the disciples of Jesus different? Well, we talked about how they act. We talked about those external things. Well, let's go back to the beginning of the message. We're not here for the externals. We're not here to take home a list of things that we should do and things we should do and things that we should do. That makes really bad Christianity. Our faith is not built on the things that we have to do. Our faith is built on the fact that things, something was done for us. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life, never sinned, never did any wrong. He always did the things that please God. And yet he died on our behalf. That's the gospel. Jesus in my place. Even though I deserve to die, he died that death for me. Even though he deserved to live, he's empowered me to live that life and to have that life. He's given me his righteousness. He has taken my sin. And he was raised at the third day so I can have life with him forever. That's the gospel that we believe in. And so here, throughout this whole message, the same skin to this new you, this all takes place how? Verse number one. Because you've armed yourself with the same way of thinking. You've armed yourself with the same way of thinking. You see, my friends, everyone lives for something. Everyone lives for something. Uh, And sometimes we don't even fully understand what we live for. Uh, Maybe here's how we could ask it. Here's how we could diagnose. What's the thing that you couldn't live without? What's the thing that you could not live without? Is it family? Family is precious. Family is valuable. Maybe for some of us, maybe for some of us, it's not even something that wholesome. It's success. We'd be viewed as successful. We need others to think that we know what we're doing. Maybe for some, it's just stuff. We like having our things. Maybe for some, it's friends or it's popularity. Maybe for some, it's doing good. Or maybe it's even church and being a part of a church. But understand this. Whatever we're living for, if it's not Christ, It's not worth living for because it can be taken away. The end of all things is at hand. The foundations that we build our lives on, they can be stripped away in just a moment's notice without a moment's notice. 
There's only one foundation that cannot be taken away. And when we build our lives on those foundations, God's going to build you up in such a way that your life will change. God's going to do a work in your heart that others will take notice. Will it be as soon as you want them to take notice? Probably not. Will it be as soon as you want it to happen? Probably not. But God will change you, and he's going to change you from the inside out. When you put your faith in Christ, the biggest change is not an external change. It's an internal change. But it's so big that it will change your external. Let's say um, that I were to go down the road um, and go to the Monroe Power Plant. Let's say I were to walk in uh, or knock on the doors, whatever, over there, right? I just said, hey, plug me in. They say, excuse me? Sir, I said, plug me in. I just want whatever you can give me. You say, well, Nate, that's a lot of power. Can I tell you that if I were to take hold of the power coming out of that plant, I would be changed. <laughs> Not in the best way, right? But I would be changed. The power of God can change you. The power of God has the ability to make you something unlike what you were ever made before. The power of God has the ability to do a work in your life that's so powerful. Understand what does Jesus have? Verse number 11. Glory and dominion. That's glory and power forever and ever. Amen. If you've encountered Christ, it's going to change you. You may look the same on the outside, but you will be totally different on the inside. And that change will come out. 